If you turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians, we'll be reading from uh, Philippians chapter 3 as we consider uh, the end of the year. I have been, uh, how about now? Very good. Yeah, I'm getting the smile and the nod from the sound booth. So can you say how now, brown cow? Very good. Yeah. Um, we're going to read Philippians chapter three, and then we are uh, going to pray. We're going to we're going to read the first sixteen verses, and uh, then we're going to ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Paul, writing to the Philippians, is is finishing up his words of encouragement and thanks to the Philippians for standing with him in his mission. Uh, for, for helping him, encouraging him, and supporting him. And uh, as he always does, Paul uh, moves from thanks or uh, describing his prayers for a church to answering any questions that they might have had or giving them uh, instruction and teaching to help sustain them and encourage them. And so he's, he's finishing that off as we enter this section of Philippians chapter 3. And he says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, prophet, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, it is 
the last day of the year. And it is good in one sense to mark out days and months and seasons of all kinds. And yet, on the other hand, uh, today is a day like any other. It's a day set aside to worship you, but uh, it is just another 24-hour period, a rotation of the earth. But Lord, we set this time aside throughout the world to say that a new year has begun because milestones are important. Monuments are important. Dates and remembering are important. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, right now to think that we are here for a purpose, for a reason, on the last Sunday of the year, gathered to worship you, and we have an opportunity to hear your word, to evaluate the 365 days that have come before, to plan for the days that are ahead, and to consider how it is that we worship and honor you. You have given us an undetermined amount of time. We don't know how many days, months, weeks, minutes that we have to live, but we know that in each of them we are created to glorify you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others. And so we pray as we close the year that you would help us to number our days, as Moses said, that we might have a heart of wisdom. Help us to see the goodness in all that you say to us. And help us to look forward with optimism and joy. To look backward with hearts of wisdom that learn from mistakes. And to look at the present with great joy, knowing that you sustain us, guard us, lead us, guide us, and protect us, and that we are safe in Christ, and that we are able to accomplish great things because you empower us. We thank you, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the... Uh, One of the difficult things uh, I, I think that I have to grapple with on occasion is that, uh, that there are good things that initially feel like bad things. Have you ever, you ever had this happen to you? Um, something, something bad, uh, you're enjoying a, a peaceful moment, you are uh, just kind of sitting there having coffee with your spouse and then she says something which you find embarrassing and the emotion wells up. You ever, you ever had this experience? Like you have a booger on your face? You, you, know, you know what I mean? It's, and, and, and the initial sting of like, how, why would you ruin this moment? Uh, but, but think about it, if I'm, if I'm heading out the door to meet someone, do I really, do I really not wanna know? No, I wanna know. I wanna know right now, I wanna know what is this defect in me, you know? Uh, are, my, are, my, uh, are my clothes not 
put together right? You know, am I hanging, this shirt hanging out all over the place? You know, do I not match? Um, is, is something that I don't have eyes to see? You know, the fact that these two colors don't go together, is that, is that, have I missed that? I need the warning, right? I need the reminder. And though it may feel bad at first, it is good. Um, and so good, I think, can come in many flavors. As I, as I look through this text and consider what Paul has to say to the Philippians and consider the fact that at, at midnight we're going to celebrate new beginnings, right? And the, the, the statistics say that tomorrow the gyms will be full and you will not be able to find a treadmill. They also say that by February you'll be able to take your pick, right? You know, um, we, have this, we have this cultural sense that something magical is going to happen. The gospel means that we can rejoice in the fact that God is always making new, that he is ready and constantly uh, creating new in our lives, giving us new opportunity, giving us a clean slate at the beginning of the day and, and sustaining us in each moment. And so God's goodness is always around, even at moments when he rebukes us, when he corrects us, when he warns us, when he disciplines us. We just have to get over ourselves, right? And listen to his voice. I want to I move through this passage and I want to look at seven kinds of, of good as we do it. And this is, these aren't necessarily different uh, flavors of good, just, just different features that leapt out of me as I reviewed the text. The first one is the goodness of a reminder. The goodness of a reminder in, in verse 1. Paul says to the Philippians, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says to them, rejoice in the Lord. This command shows up over and over in Philippians, that, that they rejoice, that no matter what their current feeling, no matter what their current circumstances, no matter what they're struggling with or what's going on in the world, that they would look at their circumstances and they would say, God is good, right? Many times we hear the scriptures say things like that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And then we, in our brain, we do some kind of mental gymnastics where we say, well, does that mean that what is bad that's happening, that I'm supposed to be like, oh, that's fun. Have you seen these uh, commercials uh, overpaying for cable where the guy is, is carrying the, the, the bags of groceries and they're like people who like paying too much for cable also like having wet grocery bags and the, the bags rip open and the stuff falls all over the ground and the lady or guy is like, yes, you know, so excited that this color. Christians aren't supposed to look at something bad and say, oh, that's good. No, they're supposed to say, despite these bad circumstances, God is still good, and my life has not been utterly derailed and destroyed by them. God is, is still good in the midst. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Focus not on what's directly in front of us, but focus on who we are in Christ and what we have from God. And then he moves on to say, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I think it's a new pastor struggle 
right? New preacher struggle, young preacher struggle, to always want to be saying, oh, you've never, you've never considered this before, but this text actually says, or the Greek word says, or, you know, and they're like trying to uncover some brand new insight. I think that's primarily driven by insecurity, right? The desire to, to capture people's attention. What I love about what Paul says to um, it's, it's Timothy. He says to Timothy that, that the preaching task and the leading task, the, the task of brother to brother or sister to sister is not necessarily to always be saying something new, but to be reminding us of things that we already know, to be pointing us back to those foundational principles and truths which are so important. Listen to what Timothy is told by Paul. That was a horrible grammar. 2 Timothy 2.14 Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. What he's saying is, is the people know the right thing. The people know the word. The people know and understand the basic principles we're to remind them of them. There's a place in our house where I put my keys, right? There's a hook. There's three hooks there. Got a four hooks? Four? I think it's three. It's four. All right. We'll fight about it later. If I'm right, I'm going to be like, I was right. All right. Fight about it later. Um, and if I don't put my keys there, right, it's over. I can't find my keys. I don't know where they go. That's why, it's, that's why it's there. And every now and again, I need to remind myself, no, 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 don't put your keys where you think they're supposed to go, which is anywhere. Like it's not to be, you need to put them where they go so they're where they are when you need them. This is simple, basic stuff, right? Why do I not do the thing that I know is best for me? Why do I do the wrong thing, right? We need to be reminded of the basics sometimes. Because life has a way of wiping out the basics. So Paul points out to them in the very beginning here to remember. Remember and to consider what we already know. Christianity is not about mastering all the things and knowing all the different things and every little last answer and, and, and bit of, of, of truth. We're to, we're to do what we can to master the truth. But the real wisdom, the real maturity and discipleship comes from putting into practice what we already know of the truth. It is dangerous to adopt the attitude of saying, we want to hear something new. Clever, wise preachers, wise parents, wise small group leaders will think of ways to refresh, to remix, or to renew the truth, not changing the content, but changing the presentation of it. Does that make sense? You always go back to the main thing. The main things should not change. Focus on things above, not on things of this world. Paul is telling them to, to look up instead of looking uh, directly in front of them. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the Lord. And so it is good to be reminded. Second, there's a goodness in warning. 
Paul talks about the dogs and the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, those who were saying to the people, no, 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 you cannot move on and become a Christian. Gentiles can't just become Christians. They have to become Jews first. They need to be circumcised. They need to observe the law. They need to do all of these things, all of these practices that we used to do before the cross. And Paul says to watch out for that. That that time of, of, of focusing on the rules and obeying the rules, that the, the people who had that, that drive, that they were mistaken, that the rules were, were there to drive them to the awareness that they were sinful, and then they would put their focus on God and say, deliver me. The rules were never given to us to be kept perfectly because we cannot keep them perfectly. There's goodness in a warning. Many times, young people, as your parents, tell you things like, it's icy out, drive slowly, or they'll say things like, it's New Year's Eve, you know, try to stay off the road. You know, young people say things like internally, they're like, my parents are always coming down on me. They treat me like they're dumb, dumb, you know, like, what, what are they always telling me this, that, and the other thing for? Uh, many times I think when, when we share, uh, I, I do this myself sometimes. When somebody says something to me, I'm like, come on, this is, this is basic. And then if you, if, I think if you think this person has probably messed up in this area before and they're just sharing a friendly warning, right? Be sure to, you know, uh, don't, don't just break, you know, when you're in snow, you know, slow down, shift into low gear. It's like they were probably hurtling out of control at one point in their life, right? and thought, I wish I'd been in low gear. Yeah, right? You know, it's just a friendly reminder. Paul says to us many things. We find many warnings in Scripture. If Scripture says beware, right, then beware. Because this is an area where people are not aware. If it says don't be deceived, then the truth is this is likely an area where you might be deceived. If it says look out, then look out. Because the desire is that you not be taken away or that, or that your joy in the truth and the gospel not be stripped away and buried underneath a pile of rules. Many times, many times, many times as, as Christians, we need to stop and focus and refresh and say, wow, isn't it amazing that because God sent Christ to go to the cross for my sin. My sin was taken from me and placed on him and punished there on the cross. And I have his righteousness because I've put my faith and trust in him as my savior. He's robbed me of my sin. He's given me his righteousness. And that means that I'm completely and utterly right before God. And that means that I might have a task list of stuff that I didn't get done yesterday. And I might have a task list of stuff that I need to do tomorrow. And I'm not talking about like change the oil in your car. I'm talking about like all the spiritual things that you think you need to do every day. You know, all that stuff that you are completely right before God and that all of that, all of that must, all of that have to do, that that is dragging you down and condemning you and focusing the devil's lies on you. 
And all those things that you might have on your list might be good things, but they can become a weight that drags your attention away. They can become a distraction to you if you don't remember the gospel. We don't do those things. We don't pray. We don't read the scriptures. We don't share our faith. We don't give generously to earn God's affection. That to me always seems like the central lie. We do it because of his affection. We do it out of joy. And when the things that we're to do out of joy and out of a desire to know God become burdens that threaten to swamp our ship to drown us, then we've gotten the whole thing backwards, right? So here's a warning to watch out for those who would burden you with works. Not exactly sure why I put this in my notes right here, but um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene that I love. It's, I'm just going to share it because illustration, right? Um, the, the, uh, there, there's, a, there's a scene in the book of Nehemiah where, uh, where the people had been taken off the land in King Solomon's time. They'd been dragged away, uh, taken off of, of the land, taken into captivity because they were numbering Israel routinely. They were multiplying horses to themselves. That's the way that the Old Testament says it, you know, uh, growing their, their armies. They were neglecting the lands of the Sabbath, and they were worshiping false gods primarily because they were marrying foreign women. This is not racial prejudice. This is the reason that they were foreign is they worshiped foreign gods, right? That's, that's the point. And so when they get back to the land, Nehemiah discovers that they've resumed this practice. And so he vigorously warns the people. He's like, are you stupid? What's wrong with you? He says in Nehemiah 13, 25, he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Wow, isn't that amazing pastoral treatment? <laughs> and they still came back to church next week. He wasn't a pastor, he was the governor. He's allowed to do that. Or maybe not, I don't know. I wonder. I mean, he wrote the book, and so he, he's, he's in control of the narrative here. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying that they would no longer do that. But look at, listen to what he says. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? He's saying even Solomon was deceived in this way, and he was the smartest man to ever live. You don't think, that, you don't think this is going to lead to your undoing? As, as Christians, we need to learn from the example of others. If Paul says, watch out for this, then we need to watch out for it. We need to watch out for making, living our faith out a burden. Oh, gotta, gotta, gotta live as a Christian today, right? What a drag. No, we get to live as Christians. And if we're not pursuing joy, if we're not chasing that and seeking it out, then we need to figure out what is, what, what, is, what is not connected right. What's not right in my theology or my thinking about God that's preventing me from experiencing joy in my relationship. Then he gives a very specific warning here in verse 4, the, the second half, the goodness of a specific warning. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He, he is pointing out their practice, the, the practice of these dogs or evildoers, is to say, you need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You must do these things in order to be right and perfect and good in the sight of God. Paul then is going to carry, uh, he's going to focus on this. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, 
I have more. I'm, I'm the model of, of perfection in their example, is what he's saying. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's from the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a good tribe to be from, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were folks who they studied the Old Testament. They, they knew the law. This is the way the legends go when it comes to, to the Pharisees. Apparently, they could take the first five books of the Bible and in order, this is the test to become an official Pharisee. They would, they would take the first five books of the Bible, right? That's a lot of material right there. And they would memorize the way that the, the, way that the scriptures were laid out. And, and, and it's very geometric. You know, it's, it's, it's perfect. The letters each take up the same amount of space. And the legend has it that they would, that they would take a copy of, of the Torah and they would put a nail in it. Now, I don't think they would actually do this because they would, you know, they, would, they would ruin a copy of the scriptures and that doesn't sound good. Unless they had like a, a giant pile of old scriptures. But they would know which letter appeared where on every page in every column. They, they, they memorized their Bibles so well that they knew exactly where on the page certain letters were located. It's pretty amazing. They had tremendous command of the scriptures. They knew all the rules. They knew all the customs, all the traditions. They practiced them perfectly. And yet when Jesus evaluated the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. Those scriptures speak of me. They studied the Bible so much they knew it so well, but they missed the point. They thought it was about being good, being perfect in the sight of God. As to law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone had any cause to rest in his accomplishments, it was Paul. If anyone could look at things that he had done, ways that he had behaved, and say, I'm right and just before God, it was Paul. And yet what he's going to say is, don't dare do that. Don't dare look at what we've done and say, I'm right in the sight of God. Because the Bible says, by works of the law, no person will be made right in the sight of God. The law the scripture exists, the Bible says, to show us our sin and to drive us to our Savior. It's a tutor to teach us to look to Christ. As a church, I think that our brand, our style of Christianity has a danger associated with it, okay? We are people who love the book. I love that I am able as pastor of this church to teach people the scriptures and that counts as a good job, right? You know, I don't have to wow the church with amazing, new, creative. I don't have to, I don't have to twist myself into a pretzel to get the people of this church to say, that was good. I love that. I love that if I say, this is what the scriptures say, people say, good job, okay? But there is a danger that is a cultural danger that we need to be so careful of in the church. 
We need to make sure that we don't sleep when there is danger looming in our culture. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about the fact that, that we're to be aware and awake and preparing and working. Proverbs says this, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Right? Love that word, sluggard. Right? You know, it's a word that you, you just, you think of that slimy, slow-moving thing. Right? And, and you think, are you calling me that? Like, you just, yep, you, you're, the sluggard is laying there in his bed like a giant slug. You slimy thing. The sluggard, the sluggard is so lazy that, that when he puts his hand in the bowl, right, to eat, he's like, I'm out of energy. He can't even, he can't even move his hand to his mouth. You know, he's, he's, he had to get the bowl. He had to pour the cereal. He had to pour the milk. He had to put the spoon in, and now he's like, I can't even put these frosted flakes in my mouth. I am so tired. Like, really, you know, you need to work a little bit harder. That's the way the sluggard acts. When will you arise from your sleep? And then here's the key to what, to what the writer's saying in Proverbs 6. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard needed to be up and about his business. This is, this is, the sluggard should still eat right, and he should still get eight hours of rest every single night. He should. But he has to be industrious, and he has to be about his task for his own sake, for, the, for his, his financial health and for his security. For our spiritual security, we need to move away from thinking that we maintain our position before God by what we do, okay? By, by making sure, like, did I read my Bible this morning? Check, then I'm safe spiritually. No, we, we read our Bible in the morning because it is good and because God has given us his word and because it makes us wise and because he loves us. Not to earn points to help us avoid flat tires, right? But we need to be aware of dangers and we need to... Make sure we avoid them. Greatest danger to the church in 2017. Let me give you just a little bit of background, okay? Greatest danger to the church in 2017. Um, one of the, the foremost experts on, on church dynamics in, in this country is a man named Tom Rayner. I've listened to him extensively, listened to him talk, listened to him uh, speak in, in public, listen to him on, uh, on podcasts on my phone. I've read books by him. He's, he's very concerned about the state of the church in the United States. This is not a guy who says, you know, like, like throw away the old hymns and, and get flashy lights and that kind of, that's not his thing. His thing is like prayer and Bible, right? Like get back to the word. So he's a, he's a good guy. He's named what he sees as the greatest danger to the church. A little bit of background. Think about David, okay? David has two instances in his life that are instructive for the church. As a young man, he looked at all of his countrymen and the way that they were behaving in the matter of Goliath, who was intimidating the army, right? David was like, why are you hiding? Why are you cowering in fear? Why are you running away from this guy? What are you afraid of? 
And he walked out on the battlefield and he defeated Goliath. He met the enemy and defeated him. A second instance in David's life, much later in his life, he was running from King Saul, who was hunting him down. Saul did not want this rival to his throne to take his place. So he decided, I'm going to kill David and get him out of the way. And David was in the cave, and Saul came into the cave to relieve himself. And while he was there, the men were all standing just inches away from David, watching him. And the men were all like, David, David, you've got a sword, and you've been anointed king, and you can take his place. Just take that sword out. Swords are sharp and pointy. Just stick it in him, and you're king. Everyone will love you. And David said, no. I'm not going to go to the throne in the wrong way. I'm not going to get the right thing in the wrong way. Right? He'd been promised the throne. Example of, of David, two enemies. Second, example of the early churches. If you look at the book of Revelation... There are letters to seven churches, and the church was facing persecution and pain, difficulty. The church was small and afflicted and under attack, and Jesus always encourages those churches, always tells them it's going to be okay, always tells them I'm going to to be with you, I'm going to guard you, I'm going to protect you, no one's going to be able to stop you. Other churches embracing immorality, laziness. Other churches compromising on their beliefs and drifting away. And what Jesus says to those churches is always a warning. Turn from what you're doing and turn back to the truth. There's two different categories here. In in David facing Goliath, he was facing an external enemy. The early churches... who who were persecuted, they were facing an external enemy. And God always told them, told David, told those churches, nothing will be able to stop you. God promised the Israelites, one of you will put to flight a thousand enemies. That's crazy military power, which comes from faithfulness and walking in, in God's way and God's plan. When the church is facing an external enemy, it cannot be defeated. It cannot, right? Chinese decide that they're going to kick all the missionaries out of China. They shut the border. The missions agencies say, this is horrible. This is a catastrophe. The church will never survive, right? Nixon goes to China when they finally open the borders. You know what they find? Church is doing fantastic. Church is growing leaps and bounds, spreading everywhere. Rapid growth. You know why? Because the armies and government of China can't stop the church. Roman Empire couldn't stop the church. Nothing can stop the church except the church. When David was in the cave, he was wrestling with the internal enemy, not the external enemy. Am I going to trust God that he's going to put me on the throne? Or am I going to cave and take an easy shortcut? When the, the churches in the, the book of Revelation, they were thinking, let's just keep the peace and embrace immorality. Let's just, let's be content with doing less than what's best. Let's, let's be content with drifting away from Jesus and moving on to other things. And Jesus always tells those churches, be afraid. Turn back to the truth. Don't let the internal enemy overcome you. 
greatest danger to the church in 2018 and 2017 is the church itself. Specifically, an attitude of entitlement that says, as Christians, we deserve, we want, we crave. I think it was Mark Dever who said a number of years ago that every church is just two or three business meetings away from destroying itself, right? You vote to undo the Constitution. You vote to eradicate the statement of faith. You vote to change the leadership. And now you have an entirely different organization, right? It's the church itself that needs to maintain its purity and its direction. We need to make sure that we don't let our cravings or our circumstances or the culture get in the way of the mission that God has given us. So Paul warns them here. He's, he's saying to them, look, I have been in this place. I have, I have seen what there is in, 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 in trying to earn God's favor, and it is empty, right? The church needs to be very careful that we don't look out at other churches and say, man, you know, what did those people do to grow to be a thousand people? Because big is good. Right? That's what America thinks, right? Big is good, right? If I get it, if I get it, if, if I get it from a big box store, you know, like I can get, I can go into Sam's Club and I can buy the, the shrink wrap package of, of three five-pound jugs of mayonnaise. Man, and it's so inexpensive. And it's like, how much mayo do you actually eat? <laughs> right? You know, big is not always better. Sometimes getting the small jar is okay. We have to be careful what we crave as churches. Do we want to be able to tell other people that we go to a big church because our church is faithful to the word and is growing because people are, are hearing the word of the Lord and converting and saying, I surrender my life to Christ? Or do we just want to be able to say that we go to a big church because big is good? We need to avoid an entitlement attitude that says we deserve and then lets people get into battles over preaching style and worship music and, and the way that we structure our small groups and this is better and this church is doing that and blah, 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 blah. Like we wanted everything to be perfect and, and, and right. No, what we need is an attitude that will bless the church and that posture, that attitude is, is this. I think it's simple. It's always this. Humility before the Lord with respect to our plans and his word. As Bruce said earlier when he got up, that we say, if the Lord wills. Isn't it amazing? We ought to pray in dependence regularly that God would do something in our midst. God, change hearts, bless the word, transform thinking. Extend this church out into the world. Raise up missionaries. Raise up people who would share their faith. Lord, create a movement of people hungry in our midst, right? We ought to pray for God to do those things, but there are many things that all we need to do to know the Lord's will is to look into this book. Amen. There are many, many things. We just need to remain faithful and ask God, bless Bless, create movement, act. 
We take a servant posture towards this book, towards our Father, and towards the world. And we say, we get to share the gospel. We get to live in a way that pleases the Lord. We have an opportunity to react to God's word in repentance and submission. That's how we avoid an entitlement attitude, by taking the form of a servant, servant of God, servant of his word, servant of the world, for God's glory and for our joy, the goodness of a specific warning. The goodness of a good example. Paul does this Take a servant posture, throw aside every trapping of, of, of prominence, throw away every medal, throw away every label that could be applied to him. He throws it all away, and he says he considers it garbage. Instead, choosing one thing to focus on, and that's pursuing Christ. He says this in verse 7, whatever gain I had, whatever titles somebody could say, could be applied to me. I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says this, that he suffered the loss of all things. He left beside his, his title as a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church, but he realized that God was at work in the church and that, and that Christ was what, what God was, was building up to and that the cross was the centerpiece of all God's work. And so he leaves behind all the labels, counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything that's not Jesus gets in the way of truly understanding and knowing God. I don't know about you, but during this season, we accumulate a lot of things, right? And everything that you buy is shrink-wrapped, twist-tied, you know, uh, what are those, wire-tied, into boxes, and those boxes are big and they pile up, right? And Amazon will put your box in another box and then ship it to you. And so now we've got twice as many boxes. And so I went out in the garage, I think it was Friday, and there is what I call Mount Meyer, right? And there is this huge pile of cardboard and it all needs to be broken down. It's a good time of, you know, get all any last holiday aggression out, you know, karate chop the boxes, you know, cut them, break them down, pile them up press them, like, get it all out. Why? Because it gets in the way. Mount Meyer builds itself in the path. Our garage door is what we call the big door, right? The front door is a little door. No one goes in and out of the front door. The front door rings, we know strangers here. If, if, if the big door opens and we hear the big door and the dog starts barking, we know that family's home, right? And family around our house could be a whole bunch of people, but all kinds of people can, can get in the big door, right? And you know what happens? Mount Meyer builds itself slightly out of the path to get in the big door, but then it spreads yeah. and it blocks. And in order for the household to run efficiently, Mount Meyer needs to go. Goodbye. Get it out of the way. Paul says, I did that with everything that I would count as credit or good in my life because the only thing of value is Christ. He is preeminent 
He is what is most important. Now, he's not saying that he doesn't go to work. You know, he made tents. He's not saying that he doesn't count other things as valuable. Kids are important. Spouses are important, right? Having a good reputation is important. These are all things that are affirmed elsewhere in the world, but they all orbit around Christ and are centered on him. Why? Because righteousness comes from Christ. He said, I want to be gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's an illusion, folks. We can never be good enough to be right under the law. But look at what it says in verse 9 here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That that is untarnishable, unruinable, untaintable perfection. The very perfection of Christ given to us by faith. So much better than trying to live and be perfect every single day in order to earn God's affection. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he loved us before we loved him. And we look and we say, how have you loved us? And he said, here, I give you my son. I give you perfection. That's amazing. I'll take that every day over my own righteousness. But I need Paul to remind me to throw away my bad habits and my bad behavior and to go back to trying to earning it myself over and over again. Paul's like, stop it. Stop that. Stop doing that every single day. Remember the gospel. Paul wanted to know Jesus. And so he pursued him, making him first priority. And then Paul talks about the goodness of hard work. Now, the, the rest I've told you to rest in Christ and to stop working hard. And now I'm going to talk about hard work and you're going to think like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, the, the, the key is this idea or this phrase, not to earn his affection, but because of it. When we, when we get it, when we say like, I get to read the scriptures and to understand how to live and to dig in and to say, oh, this is what God thinks about this or this is how God is working out salvation or look, a symbol of what God has done in Christ or this is encouraging to me or thank you for teaching me this, Lord. When we, when we shift over into that mentality, then we can say, now I will work hard at the mission which God has given to me. He says this in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see that? He has made me his own. Jesus has said, you are mine. I give you my righteousness. And now Paul says, I want to walk as closely as possible in that righteousness each and every day. I don't consider, verse 13, that I've made it my own. I don't consider that I've made myself perfect. Instead, I forget what I've done in the past. I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I don't look at the good that I've done in the past and say, that's good enough. Instead, I say, what good is God going to present to me today? What opportunities are there? How do I grow in my faith? He looks at the road forward, and he says he strains forward towards the prize. What is the prize? 
The prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, so much ink has been spilt over what that means. This is what I think it means. I think it means that moment that we break the tape at the end of life and we see Jesus. And he says, well done. And he's glad to see us. So, one, one more piece of good. Let me say this to you. You are as righteous as you need to be if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. You are as righteous as you need to be positionally. You are acceptable and loved by God. If you've put your if you say, I am a sinner in need of a savior, God says, I will save you, and you are as righteous as you need to be, positionally. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, you can never be as righteous as you need to be, ever, ever. You need a savior. The Bible clearly teaches that all over. But Paul is clearly teaching us here that there are things that we can and should do each day to grow in relationship with God experientially, that we ought to draw nearer to him, that we ought to leave behind things of the world and focus on the things of God. We press on toward the upward call as he calls us further up and further in. He calls us out to the next level, right? We see this over and over in the scriptures. The, the, uh, the disciples say, there's nothing for them to eat. What, is, what does Jesus say? You give me something to eat. They're like, huh, we can't make food. Jesus is like, you can't? Watch. And then he makes a ton of food. I think if they had faith, I think they could have done it right then and there. They could have been like, you and us, plus five loaves and two fish, we can feed this crowd. Peter's like, you know, if that's you, then let me come to you on the water. And Jesus is like, come on. Step out on the water. Come on. You know, and Peter goes out there and he starts walking. He's like, I'm, I'm walking towards Jesus on water. And he's, he's walking towards Jesus, and he's walking on water. And then I think Peter's like, I'm walking on water, and that's not possible. And then he sinks, right? Because he starts thinking about what he can do, takes his mind off on Christ, and into the water he goes. God's always calling us to the next step. We're afraid to take the next step and step out there because we're afraid he's not going to be there to save us. What happens to Peter? He realizes that he can't walk on water. He starts to sink, and he prays the shortest, and I think one of the best prayers in the entire Bible, Lord, save me, right? If he'd have prayed the way most of us pray, he'd have been at the bottom of the lake, right? Like, oh, good and kind and gracious God, right? You know? No, Jesus just grabs him and pulls him up because he's always there. And so let me close by talking about the goodness of, of the Holy Spirit here. I believe in truth. My pastor told me when I started as a pastor, he said most people are dealing with just one thing. Just one. One enormous struggle. One huge obstacle. One problem in their life. One enormous doubt. One pain from the past. One lie that they cannot seem to shake. 
And I think that in this time, as we've been talking about the scriptures, that, that somewhere in the back of your mind, you've been thinking, yeah, but, right? Yes, that's true, but what about whatever that is right there? That's the thing that you need to focus on as 2018 begins. Because it's the obstacle that's preventing you from really turning your life over to Christ. It would be easy for me to say, hey, you should start 2018 by having a Bible reading plan. How'd you like that, right? There you go. You should, you, it'd be easy to say, you ought to focus on improving your prayer life. You ought to go on a missions trip. You ought to get involved in church ministry. Those are all good things that we ought to do. But we have a tendency to let that big obstacle hold us back, to let that pain define us, to let that lie ruin all of our theology, to let that one doubt keep us in the boat and stop us from stepping out on the water. And so my encouragement to you is this. Forget what lies in the past. God has brought you to this moment where you can say, there's something I need to deal with. There's some business that I need to do with God. I need to embrace the truth. I need to deal with this pain. I need to tackle this problem. I need to overcome this struggle. I need to go over, under, or around this obstacle with the Lord as my guide empowering me this coming year. Don't slumber when your spiritual health depends on it. Forget the past and press forward. The Israelites were told that they would be fed those 40 years in the wilderness. They, they, they would be fed. They, they had no food. They were out in the desert. They couldn't farm, right? And so God gave them food. It appeared every single morning. I think it was kind of like a cornflake, you know? They, they, the Bible says it tastes like something. Maybe some of you in the kitchen, you could like cook it up, coriander, you know, whatever. Just you could, you could make some of it and replicate it, right? And it showed up every single morning and they were told to gather just enough for a day and then on the day before the Sabbath, gather enough for two days and somebody who got really like, we're going to gather extra, right? You know, they, they, they tried to gather extra and they couldn't. And somebody only went out and gathered a little, got exactly what they needed. And if they saved some for the next day, it was full of worms. And if they didn't gather for the Sabbath and they went out to find some, there was none there. And, and I, I think today, what, is that, what does that teach us or explain to us or instruct us in the Christian life? And I, I think it's this. You need... Fresh grace every day. You need a fresh experience of God's grace. Today's sins, confess them today. Today's promises, find them today. Today's battles, engage them today. Don't say like Pharaoh did when he was overwhelmed with a plague of frogs and he was told the Lord will take away the frogs. You just name the time. You know what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. Can you imagine? He lived with the plague an extra day. Why? Because he's like, ah, don't do that. 
fresh grace. Forget what lies in the past. Deal with this incredibly overwhelming American need for comfort. To get exactly what we want and get it our way and receive the goodness that comes from God in a word from his word calling us to take steps of faith forward as we begin each new day. And remember not to fall victim to the lie that we don't earn our salvation by living in a holy way. Instead, we live in a holy way because of our salvation. Not to earn God's love, but because of it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share this word. I pray for each and every one of us that, that, that whatever piece of business we feel like we need to do with you, Lord, whatever it is that we need to make peace with, whatever pain we want you to heal, whatever problem or obstacle we want you to take out of the way, whatever doubt we struggle with, in faith and humility as we present it to you, we pray that you would move in our lives. We pray that you would show yourself faithful and pour out fresh grace. We pray that as you speak in a still, small voice through your word, that we would find it and apply it to our hearts. We pray in all things that we would pursue Christ. I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who's, who's struggling. Maybe they don't know the forgiveness that comes from your son. I pray that they would embrace it. Pray that they would turn to Christ and be saved. And Father, for those who continue just to struggle year after year with the same things, I pray that they would find deliverance in the truth. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.